I am James Abraham, and I am medicine. Welcome to Represented in Medicine. I'm Rachel, and once again, bringing you another installment of our podcast aiming to expose our audience to the different facets of medicine, how they can best prepare themselves for a career as a physician, finding relatable points with our guests, and finding some connection that maybe your story resonates with their story. And today I'm excited. I am joined with Dr. James Abraham. Welcome, Dr. Abraham. Thank you for having me. Um, And I know he's official because he's in Scrubs, so he's the real deal. Um, (laughs) Um, Do you want to talk a little bit about what your current clinic role is? Yep. So I am a gastroenterologist here at the University of Minnesota. I've been on faculty now for about six years. Um, I had done my residency as well as my um, fellowship in gastroenterology here um, at the University of Minnesota, and it's been interesting. I'm not originally a Minnesotan. I'm an Indian American guy from uh, just outside Chicago, and I moved here about 13 years ago. And uh, if you had asked me at any specific point of my training when I finished up if I would still be here, the answer would have been probably not. And yet here I am, 13, 14 years later. And this has been a great place to be, and happy to be here doing this podcast. So you have to forgive my ignorance in the gastroenterology yep. world. Mm-hmm. You mentioned you did a fellowship. Yep. And your residency then was in uh, internal. internal. Yep. Okay. And, mm-hmm. So how long was your fellowship? Three years. Okay. And then I did a chief residency year in between my internal medicine residency and then my GI fellowship. How did it feel when you were actually done? It did. Did it take you a while to realize that you weren't in some sort of academic medicine <laughs> learner. I mean, you, you continually are a learner. Yep. I recognize that. But truly, when you were through with your training. When I was an adult in medicine? Is yes. That, is that what you mean? Yes. I, I, I do think that it's fair to say that um, a lot of times in medical training, whether you're a student, a resident, a fellow, um, it is a form of adolescence where you're definitely, there's a lot you have to learn. There's also times where you feel like you must rebel and kind of strain against the the ties that bind in terms of your training and you're waiting to kind of get out on your own and make your own decisions. And then there's the awesome fear of being an adult and practicing on your own, which is also kind of an interesting challenge, but uh, a really exciting opportunity. So it was a extremely gratifying moment to say that I was done being both a physician and a student Mm -hmm. and just, I could focus on being a physician as much as you're still learning. But, um, yeah, it was humbling and extremely exciting to be done with <laughs> with all that training and be able to say that 11 years of training was finally behind me. 11 years. Yeah. I think that one, a struggle that I would have as a med student that maybe I, I didn't think about much before is sort of the constant back and forth where it's sort of like when you... I'm thinking of like when I left junior high and your top dog and then you go to high school and your bottom dog again. And then, you know, with all these steps along the way, you leave college, you're senior in college, and then you come into this unknown world and you're the fresh meat again. Mm-hmm. And then you go through medical school and you kind of feel like the top dog there. And then you're sort of, you know, you're at the, I don't know how much of a power or hierarchy struggle there is with like a, a, an intern resident versus, you know, someone who's been there two, three years, but just mm-hmm. sort of that continuous bottom top of the food chain element over and over again. To a certain extent, I think that 
that level of prowess and humility that mm-hmm. constantly seems to get refreshed, refreshed yeah. every three or four years, I think, in medical training is, I think it's a good thing. I think um, when you are in a practice where people come to you when they're vulnerable and expecting you to have answers, unless you hold that in a healthy way, it's really easy to be convinced by your own abilities. And sure. One of the things I think has been a hard lesson, but I think it's the lesson I've learned in my practice is you have to go in with a very humble mindset. Like you, you know, some things you clearly do, but there's a lot you don't know. And then you also have to recognize that the patient has a voice in the midst of that. And so that's what I continue to, when I think about parts of my practice that I really enjoy and then continue to be challenged by, like that's actually what I actually enjoy. So probably good that you're doing it then and not me. Who <laughs> We're both in our right careers. <laughs> we, have, we may have, may have found our purpose. Yes, right. exactly. So would in thinking about, you know, I asked you in preparation for this session to think about your own journey to medicine, which was it fairly traditional? Did you go right from college to medical school? Did you take some time in between? Um, I did go straight through. I finished college in about three years. Okay. And then went into medical school as part of a, a pre-professionals program through the University of Illinois in Chicago. Okay. So yeah, I think I had known from a very young age that mm-hmm. I wanted to be a doctor. And part of me, I think, was driven to just do that. Mm-hmm. Um, it is very different knowing what you want to be and then the actual process of getting there. Mm-hmm. I think those are the things that you have to kind of resolve along the way. Yes. Um, but yeah, I think it was kind of my path to medicine, at least in terms of training and the progression was, I would say, fairly traditional. And are you working with, in your current role, do you work with, do you see a lot of med students? Do you see a lot of pre-med students that are scribing, that are foreshadowing? Do you get asked about that sort of thing a lot? Um, So we definitely see a lot of um, pre-medical students that scribe. I don't work with a scribe personally in my practice, but um, in the clinics that I work in, they're often present. There's a a elective rotation that medical students can take uh, during their clinical years of medical school. And uh, when they participate in the gastroenterology rotation at the university, one of the experiences they'll have is being in my clinic maybe one or two half days during that month-long rotation. And so yeah, it's actually kind of fun to have the student present and see some of the patients that I see every day, get to meet people I've known for a long time, and then also work with me as we start to take on new patients with new problems. We try to make it fun and instructive and give them a, a good sense of what GI, at least how I practice it, is all about. And if you were going to, if you were speaking with a student who was about to come in and scribe for the first day or shadow, mm-hmm. or even do an elective rotation, you know, for the first time. Yep. What's important for them to remember as they're as they're kind of approaching what their role should be? Yeah, I think one of the things I recognized once I became an attending or an adult there you go. <laughs> practicing in medicine is that so much of my training, as much as you're learning how to do things, you're also learning how to talk, how to think about a problem, how to think about a patient, how to think about all the things that surround that patient, and also um, how to be able to discuss it in a way that makes sense, not only to your patient, which is a skill on its own, but also to other people that you might involve in their care. One of the things I appreciate medical students doing is if they're attending my clinic, you know, I don't expect them to understand all the nuances of all these diseases that they're seeing and start only starting to get exposure to. But one of the things that um, will never, never 
be a detriment to you is at least looking in, uh, into the chart and reading about a patient. And as much as you may not necessarily know all of what's being said, starting to look up and understand the vocabulary of how people are discussing that patient and their, and their specific questions. Regardless of whether you understand the nuances of the specific disease process or the specific issues of care that are going on, un having some sense of where things were and where they're going can really make the difference in terms of being able to get a little bit out of that clinic day and that exposure or getting a lot out of it, something mm -hmm. that you'll remember and can build, continue to build your medical knowledge on. Right, there's sort of that, I, I think I hear from students that when they do approach, approach a situation where they're observing or, or, or part of a rotation, you can kind of go to an extreme to your detriment in one of two ways where you can be too aggressive and too mm -hmm. sort of involvement, too much involvement, but then there's also what a lot of people don't think about is that if you lead by fear or if you're, you know, if you're too wallflower-esque or if you're not jumping in at all or, or asking questions when you might have them or feeling afraid to approach the position you're working with can also be the wrong approach. Sure. I think a lot of people, and I had to learn this too, uh, physicians are of all sorts and all kinds yes. and all types of personalities. I think recognizing that, particularly in an academic institution, a lot of us are here because this interaction with students or this interaction with residents or fellows or trainees in medicine is important to us. Recognizing that when you're in an opportunity for somebody who's looking to teach you, they don't have all the answers about how you need to learn, mm -hmm. and some of that needs to be brought by the student. And honestly, a fundamental aspect of that is coming in prepared, right. um, knowing something about the patients you're seeing, knowing something about the physician you're working with, having some background, um, however nominal, to be able to ask questions because I know the students scared. I was scared in their safe position too right. and uh, afraid to ask questions but I recognize now that the only person that loses in that encounter is the student. Like there really is a critical opportunity there and sometimes with a small amount of investment and just reading and being willing to ask a question, sometimes opportunities that you wouldn't have expected come out of that. Right. I think not only from the learning in that day but also I can imagine and and also, even from my personal experience, opportunities to participate in research, opportunities to come back for another clinic day, yep. having a connection, like so, uh, somebody know your name the next time you're back. Maybe you won't, won't, won't be a student, but maybe you would be the intern or resident for mm -hmm. going on training. You interact with the attending again. Some of those things come back in ways that you'd be really surprised by. And there's a lot that you can do as a student that can help engender a, a positive outcome in your career. And these are some of the small ways that can happen. Can you recall any particular time where in your medical student journey or maybe when, as you were a resident, that was sort of a turning point for you where you got advice for somebody or you sort of had, you sort of felt that shift in your confidence change or, or maybe something that someone said that resonated with you that maybe changed your perspective or that still sticks with you? Sure. I can imagine thinking back, this is a, a long time ago, but I think I was a third year medical student and in the midst of my clinical rotations in my first clinical year. Mm -hmm. One of the things I think every student struggles with is a lot of us, you know, we're high achieving students, you know, we knew a lot of stuff, did well on tests, you know, always had the right answer. But one of the things that I think I really struggled with in my first part of my clinical years was wrestling with uncertainty and not really being sure you, you have an answer, but you don't necessarily know it's the right answer mm -hmm. or you don't have the perspective to know how far that's going to be able to take the patient or how soon the response will happen. Yeah. 
you know, when you, we, when I struggled with that specific question and that level of uncertainty, it really made me question about like, is it normal to feel stupid? Is it normal not to feel like you've got an answer? Is it normal to feel as much at a loss as the patient does in that room and in that moment? You know, they're vulnerable and you're vulnerable too in a different way. I had a senior physician and it was the first time I'd ever mentioned anyone that I felt, I literally used the word stupid. And I said like, is it normal to feel stupid? Because I feel stupid all the time. Uh, to his credit, he looked at me and took a moment to answer, at which point I, I, I thought to myself, I've made a grave mistake. <laughs> I've ruined Never my career. show your hand. <laughs> Never show weakness. Yes. I've, I've ruined my career before it got started. <laughs> and he looked at me with profound empathy and said, something that will continue to stick with me is that if you ever stop feeling stupid, you're at a moment in your career where you are going to hurt a patient. Yeah, and it was really helpful. Like, and he said it with, I could see he got tears in his eyes as he said it. It was a very meaningful thing that he was saying. He says, at every critical point in his career um, where he felt like he was getting too big for his britches, mm -hmm. like he immediately got wrecked and brought back to earth by not having an answer or having a difficult outcome or having to have a difficult conversation with a patient saying, like, this isn't going the way we planned. And ultimately, what he's saying, it's not the way we planned. Sometimes it's the way he planned it. Being able to have the humility to admit that in your career and being able to have the humility to wrestle with that and what that means, not only for the patient you're working with, but for the next patient, the next day, the next patient, the next year in that similar situation. Like that really is where I think resilience in medicine, which is a really difficult human science, I think that's really where your ability to do this day after day gets tested. And your ability to meet that challenge and be able to push forward despite not having the answers, really, that's where a lot of us are, and that's what a lot of us do in order to get through some of these really difficult days. Well, and when I, I think you're absolutely right, and that that's a wonderful, exactly what I was looking for, so mm -hmm. well done. I just think sometimes, you know, these students who are, you would have been 24, maybe, sure. in your yeah. third year. And that's the pretty typical traditional age student where they would be in their first year of rotations. And for me, parallel, that's my first, I'm in my first job out of college. Mm -hmm. And when I think about where I'm at now, a few years after that, you know, just the difference in my own professional growth and my confidence, my self-assuredness, my ability to speak up for myself, but also I still have those self-doubt moments. Mm -hmm. and, and, to ex and I think there's... I don't know who puts this pressure on more where it's external pressure on the on the students and then, you know, maybe residents too, or it's all internal. But to think that because you're going into medicine, you just get to skip past any of that young professional growth and, 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 and journey is, is ridiculous that we sort of put that on. It, well, because you're, you're, you're a physician and even as a medical student, you're in the healthcare you're part of the healthcare team, and so the stakes are so much higher. So you should you should skip over all of these things. Sure, I think it's an interesting point you bring up because I've talked about this with students and even fellow colleagues before. One of the ways that I kind of describe medicine, you kind of alluded to it earlier, is that it really the medical training in and of itself is is a exercise in delayed and prolonged adolescence. Mm -hmm. Just let me let me define that practically. I think. 
I was taking care of patients that were critically ill in the ICU, but I still wasn't paying my own car insurance. My dad took care of that um, and kind of handled all the logistics with that. Even with my medical insurance, my dad had to tell me what to do for that and what a deductible was. And I work in healthcare. Thinking about what I was doing in my life, what I would do during the day, did not necessarily speak to what I was doing when I left the hospital or left school. Um, from the standpoint that there was much of my adult life that was required the help of multiple people in my support network to, to make happen, and that I probably wasn't a pla- in a place mentally, physically, financially, emotionally to handle all of the intricacies of adulthood. Um, but I was dealing with these very adult, complex things during the day. Much of medical training is in that mode where much of what we would expect in terms of usual or imagined adult life, like take buying your first used or new car or buying your first home or finding a new apartment or establishing a relationship with a partner, having kids if you decide to do so, the intricacies of finding a new job or a new place to live, like new physical place to live, all those things get pushed off, delayed, or come out in different ways that it's interesting, like, only do you get to deal with those when some of the other throws of medical education just get pulled away. And it was it was both a sh- exciting to be done with training, but it was also the next day immediately daunting because it suddenly just told me all the other things I had to deal with that now were just my responsibility. But it was interesting. I have to smile and laugh kind of thinking about what I felt like in that moment. I, I, think, I think that's important to bring up. I, I hope that if we have current medical students listening that they hear that that and that you know because I do know students who are spouses or are you know they have their parents or they're not and they're exhausting all their energy on medical school and everything Mm -hmm. else they're letting someone else handle yeah it's not uncommon Mm -hmm. you're very you're very lucky to have those other support systems in place Mm because there are students who are trying to navigate everything entirely on Um, their own who don't have someone to take care of that but that that is sometimes just what has to be done and for 11 years that's just the way things go (laughs) and then you get hit with the fire hose of adulthood right right as soon as you're done that's right back to your pathway to medical school were there moments that really challenged you in terms of you know it sounds like you you graduated in three years and then you went right to medical school that if I were from a medical student or a pre-med student hearing that, I would think, well, you just walk down through and that's the way everybody does it. And I got to see, so I'm, I'm done for, you know? Mm-hmm. And so can you speak to any roadblocks you might've faced along the way? Sure. How was your resiliency tested? One of the things with medical school is that particularly with, you know, I can imagine there's a lot of students that are, you know, hoping to pursue a, a career in healthcare, regardless of whether it's being a physician, nurse, physical therapist, any number of um, excellent options. It is not uncommon for those students to typically be in a spectrum of students that are very high achieving. You know, have done well or have fairly good grades or good GPAs, you know, very well accomplished outside of school in terms of um, extracurricular activity, volunteering activities, things like that. Getting into medical school and being with a group of 180 students that are also like that I think could be very sobering in that you're not always number one. Mm-hmm. You're not always needed number two. You may not always be even number 10 in the, in the class. Everybody's coming to medical school, uh, school in the, the midst of their own process, but 
wrestling with the fact that you may not always be the best and that your grades may not always be the best when they characteristically happen is really tough. What I would say to anyone that um, feels like any parts of their transcript are less than stellar is if, if you have a physician that tells you that they've never failed anything or struggled with any subject in their life, they're lying to you. <laughs> or they're just telling themselves the legend of who they hoped they would be. <laughs> I think failure in any human science, such as medicine, is part of what keeps us human mm-hmm. and keeps us able to, to deal with the muck that is human life, that, that sometimes things go great, but in the midst of something really difficult, you want people that are willing to be there with you and, and meet you in the midst of that vulnerability. And you only learn those skills in the midst of failure. And you won't be likely batting a thousand in you know each of your cases no, you know absolutely. No, no. <laughs> so and it, it's important to bring up i think that you do serve as a um, interviewer for prospective students to medical school and you also serve as a member of the admissions committee so you are speaking with an authority of someone who is judging and is or evaluating the someone's merits or potential for medical school you're not speaking just from nowhere, saying you can do it. <laughs> yeah, really theoretical discussion. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's a very practical discussion. You work in Minneapolis, mm-hmm. is that right? Yeah. Obviously seeing a wide range of cases and, and patients, all ages, is that accurate? Or do you work um, adults, with an, so you work with eight, adults. 18 okay. and over. Okay, yeah. still a pretty large group there. Yep. And in a metropolitan area, what are some of the barriers that you see patients facing and maybe we'll stick to just to kind of narrow it down maybe things that are more recent or more current I guess um beyond or have you seen it change I guess Uh, the patient population change have you seen the the issues that patients are facing just in terms of getting access to you or um in maintaining a strong physician to patient relationship I'll let you kind of take it from there sure I think when we talk about medicine, there's a number of things that make it challenging to see patients every day. And that patients may feel them, but their providers feel them as well. I think it's a foregone conclusion, a well-established fact, that healthcare expenditures are really expensive. Mm-hmm. And that things cost a lot. And it's not always clear, uh, often clear as mud, as to why things cost as much as they do. The providers feel that as much as the patients. And that... Um, there are ways that we want to treat people and the ways that we would like them to be treated with options that we want every single patient that sees us to have. Um, and that is not always logistically, financially, even from a proximity standpoint, not always available to everyone. That is difficult because, you know, again, you know, much of medical education is geared on having the right answer, knowing the evidence, recommending the right thing. Yep. But then it meets the, the rubber meets the road when practically you're sitting in the room with a patient. And for some reason or another, a lot of times with being cost or finances, this right answer, quote-unquote right answer, is out of reach. Um, that continues to be an issue that is, you know, all about wrestling with the soul of what human medicine should be how we also wrestle with the business of how we provide that to a large group of patients that need it, when the need is ever increasing. I think other things that are difficult for both patient providers are getting access to the, the physician or 
mid-level providers, when I say mid-level providers, I mean nurse practitioners or right. physician assistants, um, getting access to providers when they need them, um, huge needs in primary care, and then even when we look at specialty care outside of metropolitan areas, being able to see a specialist in a specific field is extremely difficult. And we all wish that is different, but the need far surpasses um, the supply, and that's where much work needs to be done. Mm-hmm. I think also, you know, when I think about things uh, you know, that have everything to do with wrestling for the soul of medicine, um, recognizing that providers get burned out. Um, when we are working with people that are vulnerable and need help, it is very easy to continue to give and give and give until there's nothing left to give. I think only now is the field of medicine starting to, to, to grapple and start to ask the really important questions of how do you help a provider continue to be a provider? And it's not just paying them more or giving them a different clinic to work in or giving them um, or providing a different way that they um, can give those services of themselves, but um, it's recognizing that um, as a culture, a medical culture, that we need to be taking care of ourselves, that we need to have balance in our lives as best we can, that we need to have other things outside of medicine that re-energize us, that how we structure our schedules, how we balance patient loads, all those things will play a role in whether a provider can still be a provider I think those are things that we want to make sure, particularly for prospective students and current students, that you know, as the people that are making up the workforce now and uh, will create the culture of the workforce for those prospective students to participate in later, that we want to make sure that that's positively being addressed. Yeah, those would be three areas I would be thinking about. Sure. So in establishing, you know, these barriers or recognizing that there are challenges and opportunities to make change and, and address some of these, you know, the, the need versus the supply, for example. What what gives you hope in, in terms of that you see as, or I guess the future of, of your work and, and when you're thinking about the upcoming, you know, generation of physicians and, and what keeps you positive despite some of the challenges and that there may be? Yeah, the, um, it's interesting. I think being at a center where I continually get exposed to the hope and idealism of students, mm-hmm. regardless of level of training, that is one thing that I realized now and also in retrospect, like those are the things that really energize me. I think it is really easy to get caught within the bubble of the care that you provide and also the logistics of how you provide it. Uh, that is an unending deep rabbit hole that you can get um, lost in. Having a student ask you questions that pull you out of that rabbit hole, like looking, asking a question about a basic fundamental aspect of medicine that you haven't really thought about a long time and may need to review, um, <laughs> <laughs> being tested in that way, um, or even having somebody that um, with the benefit of more recent training or even shifts in culture, like being able to look at something in a different way that you wouldn't have been able to, and asking you a question that, yeah, that really could, gives me pause and I have to think about before I answer you. Those are things that really do energize me as part of the reason why I'm here. Our hope with this podcast, you know, we call it representative medicine to go against the stigma or label of underrepresented in medicine, sure. which is a we talk about in our intro episode a category of um, applicants or medical students where 
their ethnic their um, ethnic population or demographic might or is categorically underrepresented in the field of medicine. We want to we wanted to bring on physicians who may have at one point um, years ago were still currently were considered or are considered underrepresented in medicine and just kind of hear about their experiences to give students that hope that and it's you know even though they can't see our guests visually that they hear stories and could see themselves in the role as a physician even if they don't have a family member or maybe they're the first member of their family to go to college sure certainly we have students who are the first in their family to go to medical school i guess i'm curious did you have any sort of you know person in your life in your early stages of pursuing this career where you could look at and see this person, I can see this person looks like me and, and they're, they're in that way a role model for me. Or did you really, were you really able to find that where you, in your process? It's a good question. And it requires a bit of reflection over the last 10, 15 years. I'm Indian American. I was born here in the U.S. My parents are both from Southern India and immigrated to um, Chicago like in the early 1970s. And I say that just to provide some context. Uh, when I think about my medical career and the people that were most visible either in teaching me, teaching my courses, acting as preceptors, even into my residency and fellowship, but I would say largely most of my trainers were white. Being Indian American, I think um, if you are Asian, we aren't considered necessarily underrepresented in medicine. I think there's fairly uh, good representation of both people from Asia and from the Indian subcontinent in medicine. But that being said, while we are present in the workforce, if you look just a level above that in terms of leadership, we're not always as represented there. It gives me hope for the future because I think from the standpoint that I think there is a more general awareness that these disparities exist. And my hope is that we continue to leverage our presence and the presence of other communities in medicine um, to take on these leadership roles and be visible and provide a trailblazed roadmap for the future generation. I think it's one thing a number of us have um, thought about from the standpoint that um, our community that we care for is constantly changing and looks far different. I mean, even for, if we were to take a look at immigration patterns in Minnesota since 1950, there's been a stark change, particularly in the last 15 years, which with that community that has changed here in the Twin Cities area, our, our workforce needs to reflect that. The people that come to us vulnerable and need help need to see themselves reflected. I think those are things that I hope for, and those are things that I hope to continue working towards. I think that hopefully segues to some of your passion projects outside of just your, you know, clinical obligations. I think med pre-med students really are only focusing on getting to medical school and then getting into practice, picking their specialty sure. and not, and understandably not considering how they might fill other parts of their time, not just socially, but you know, are you going to become a faculty member? Or are you going to be a researcher, but and even expanding beyond that. So I'm curious to know what other professional passions you have. Mm -hmm. What do you say? What are you involved with? In addition to, if you are, in addition to being a faculty member and an admissions committee member, and <laughs> you know, a full time clinician. Sure. So 
Yeah, so I am a faculty advisor for uh, a program at the medical school called uh, EXPECT, or Exploring Physiology Through Education and Collaborative Training. It's a very fancy acronym. That, um, I mean, you're lucky it worked we, out for the... Well, we, we, wrote what, <laughs> like, we, we wrote what we wanted it to be and then kind of threw words into like There you go. It, which is like how most um, clinical trials get <laughs> So from that standpoint, what the purpose of that group is to take medical students, mostly first and second years because in the midst of their clinical um, or preclinical years, they're working a lot with and learning about anatomy and physiology and using these preclinical students to go into um, Minneapolis area public schools to talk about anatomy and physiology. So demonstrating human organ specimens to um, students in sixth through eighth grade. Um, one of my um, strongest beliefs is that, you know, there's been a lot of outreach to high school age students in terms of getting them interested in STEM and getting them interested in medicine as a field, but sometimes those interests or even the feeling of whether that's even a potential opportunity or option for them, sometimes those decisions get made even before high school. And so part of the reason for this group to exist, I think, is to go and reach into those grade school areas, particularly in public schools that that reach out to underserved populations to show that we're here, show that this is a land-grant university that's present in their backyard, and get students engaged with teaching the people that they're going to care for. I think it's a great learning experience for the medical students to see the community they're going to be taking care of and, and living their lives with in, in many ways. Um, I think it's great for those students to see people that look like them, that have gone through 11 years of training or and will be going through 11 years of training to see that it's possible and that they can do it too. Um, I think it's really an important opportunity for our medical students to not just participate in the community, but also learn how that community needs to hear their advice, learns how to talk to them, learns what's important to them, learns what kind of cultures they come from and how they need to be sensitive and reflect those in their own practice each day. So it's, it's a program I'm really proud to be working with. I'm inspired by the medical students. I'm inspired by those sixth to eighth grade students and the questions they ask and test me with and test our students with. It's, it's really an amazing opportunity. How long have you been working with that program? Um, so we started it officially, I think at this point it's maybe been about three or four years. Okay. Um, it, um, I had ideas of wanting to start it when I first came on faculty just based on some experiences and uh, a program I had participated with back in Chicago while I was a student. And so I was hoping that we could build a form of that program here and now we're going on three years strong, three, four years strong. Well, it's interesting. I recorded a, uh, an episode with Trisha Todd in the Pre-Health Student Resource Center, and we talked about encouraging students to include those things that may not seem entirely relevant to your application or to the practice of medicine. Mm -hmm. This is, this is you know, has the science component to it, but we were talking about, you know, your hobbies or your passions that you're interested in outside yeah. of medicine that, for one thing, just give you skill sets that are necessary as a physician. You know, we, we were talking about music as an example and how you might incorporate that uh, into your preparation, but also what might become part of your co-professional identity and, and some, some, you know, the people that we admit into medical school are driven, passionate individuals, and they're not going to give up those qualities once they, you know, they're in medical school. So you look at someone like yourself who had this commit or organization that you were involved with in Chicago 
went through medical school, kept the idea sort of on the back burner, probably had it, you know, revisited it every once in a while. And then, you know, sort of full circle three, four years later, it's a thriving long, hopefully one with longevity program. And that is so cool. I think other things that students can work on it or find opportunities for it is if they can find ways where they can practice public speaking, Mm -hmm. it doesn't matter whether that's in their faith-based community or that's through volunteering exercises or leadership and community organizations, but from being an effective presenter, performer, speaker, those skills pay dividends in medicine. It's not that we want to be like haranguing our patients in clinic with everything we want them to do <laughs> and then they sit there silent and listen to us. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that ultimately being able to present your ideas concisely, clearly, in a way that your audience can understand it uh, is a skill I rely on every day. Mm-hmm. Um, and the public speaking component also comes in being an academician and an academic physician. When we are learning and asking questions and trying to find answers, you need to be able to communicate that with the larger medical community. Mm-hmm. And there are plenty of opportunities nationally and internationally to share those ideas amongst your co-professionals. And I've seen good presenters and I've seen bad presenters I've seen everything in between and I definitely have much to learn in my speaking career but um, it is definitely a skill which I feel like I rely on often and whatever practice you can get doing that or or stepping out in in bravery and encourage to do that I think is really critical and can honestly make certain aspects of medicine which seemed out of reach all of a sudden become exciting opportunities for you I think that's a great point and and one I forget about too And what I wouldn't want is for someone to take that and then think that they have to then go and go big picture right away. That, you know, to to hone my public speaking skills, now I need to really present publicly and Mm -hmm. and be, you know, present at a big conference or or something. And and really, I think think you brought this up a little bit, is just starting small. You know, in your group project, take on a little bit more of a leadership role or, um, you know, take a... Take oh. an improv class and or an acting class or something that just gets you out of your comfort zone and, and realize, because I think the, a lot of the fear in public speaking is, back to our earlier point about sounding stupid or yeah. sounding in, uninformed or looking silly, mm-hmm. you know, and you realize that if you do, that's the worst of it, you yeah. know, <laughs> the, you have to really think like, what's the worst that can happen here? I'm not going to fall on my face. And and so starting small, I think, helps students build up to that. And not only that, I think it can always get better. Yes. It's never, like, you know, the first time I got up in front of people and talked, it was in my faith community. And I look back on that, and it went okay, but I can also be, you know, reasonably, mm-hmm. like, uh, cognizant of the fact that I probably was not the best compared to how I am right now. And I, I still have things I learn in my speaking engagements. I still have things that I learn to take away each time. Yep. But the, the point I'm, I would like to make is that the first time is always the worst time. Yes. And the second time is also going to be, it's going to be better than the first, but worse than the third. <laughs> and, it only, and it will continue in that way as you um, move forward. I think a lot of my speaking engagements, I've spoken locally, I've spoken regionally, nationally, and then I'm... I'm actually going to be giving a talk uh, on an international stage uh, this summer, and I am nervous about that, but I'm also excited about that. But I would not be ready for that opportunity without all the other experiences and challenges and things I had to learn along the way. So, yeah, those opportunities can start small. I think the 
taking a leadership role or being the first one to present as part of a group project is a great uh, low-hanging fruit, I think. There are a number of other ways to practice that skill. Well, I want to turn more into a wrap-up phase because sure. I want to be mindful of your time. When you combine your years of experience, mm -hmm. the fact that compared to other physicians that I may interview, your medical school residency time was more recent than what others might be. Sure. And that you're a member of the admissions committee and you're a faculty member and you work with medical students. Can you, can you sum up in any way just something you wish you could tell every pre-medical student or medical student, just anyone looking to pursue a career in medicine? Hmm. What would you so, tell yourself? What do I, that's a, it's a great question. I, have to really... I didn't prepare you for this yeah. one, so no, I'm it's sorry. A good, no, it's good. <laughs> it's be more off the cuff. Yeah. Um, that's a great question. I, I would say, similar, similar to what we talked about earlier, there are so many things I would love to say to James Abraham as an early medical student, as a third-year medical student, as an intern to make his life easier with how to deal with knowing what to do when, how to do it. Things that truly would have made life easier. The things I actually would want to tell to me at each of those points are that it really does get better from the standpoint that medicine is a wonderful field, but it is a field where your sense of purpose and your sense of identity and your sense of your competency, your proficiency will get tested every day. That is normal. It's part of it. Those are things where you're not always going to feel confident. But recognizing that with each passing day, getting up, coming back, doing it again, facing the next patient, that it only gets better that you learn the words that you didn't have to begin with. Mm -hmm. I think about patients that I saw when I was a medical student, and I think about if I were to see that patient again or a patient like them right now. Um, there was so much with the lived experience of being a physician in between that would have changed about that encounter. Um, we can't change the past, but we can let it inform how we see our future. And much of what I would hope that young James A. Graham would know is that the best way to practice medicine is to practice reflectively. Being honest about the things that we've done well, being honest about the things that we could do better, and being willing to change them. Yeah, that's what I would hopefully tell myself in the past. Mm -hmm.